Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30 is our text for the day. And this is the Word of God. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Will you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the glorious ceremony of the Lord's Supper that we get to watch the Savior Institute in this passage. I thank you for the privilege that you give us that we can open this word and in it you speak. And my prayer is, Lord, that we would hear you in your word and that we would marvel at the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus and that we would celebrate and worship rightly. So God, do your will, do your work in us and help us to be surrendered to you. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Four times now in the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus has predicted his death. And even if the disciples were quite slow on the uptake, which they were, it is clear to the reader of the gospel, according to Matthew, that Jesus knew he would go to Jerusalem he knew he would die. He knew he would rise again. And all of the teaching and all of the miracles, all the miracles and all the, the conflict with the religious leaders and all the interaction with the crowds, all these things are part of the Savior's march to the cross. Last week, 
we saw some pictures of preparation as Jesus told his disciples what was to come. Remember, the priests plotted to have Jesus killed, just not during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Mary devotedly anointed Jesus with a bottle of very expensive perfume. It was an act that Jesus had prepared him for burial. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the priests to sell himself to them as a guide to capture Jesus. Much of what we saw last week was others around Jesus doing things that would prepare for Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Today, we're going to watch as Jesus takes action himself to walk closer to the cross and toward the fulfillment of his earthly mission. Now, as we watch, for you note-takers, we will find really two key points of application in three scenes as we watch the events of the Passion Week continue to take place. Here we've made it to Thursday. So point number one, praise Jesus for willingly walking to the cross. Praise Jesus for willingly walking to the cross. Now guys, again, just if you're new or you don't know, why do I do it this way? I want you to know this point is not the only thing anyone could learn from this passage. But this is something that I'm saying to you, friends. This ought to be our response to all of the truths in this section. This ought to be at least one clear church response. That's why we give you these points, okay? You can write down plenty of other things, and that's totally fine. Look at verses 17 through 19 to begin the first scene. This is so great. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Well, let's just ask. How many of you have heard of the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread? Every lady who went on that retreat better say yes to this, right? right. Amen, Kay? Amen. But the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they are actually two separate events, but they're back to back. The Passover was on the 14th day of the first month in the Jewish calendar year. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was from the 15th to the 21st. You got a really nice time off work. So the first century Jew would speak of these as one celebration. They were lumped together. So sometimes you read about Passover, sometimes you'll read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Oftentimes, both that single day that is Passover and the week of Unleavened Bread are included when someone talks about these things. Now, Passover, as you know, is the feast that we saw commanded in the book of Exodus. It was a sacred meal set aside for the nation of Israel to commemorate the night that God led the Hebrews out of Egypt and out of their slavery. If you recall, the Egyptian ruler was cruel to the descendants of Abraham. 
He enslaved them. He forced them to hard labor. The Pharaoh even commanded that Hebrew boys be murdered immediately after their birth to keep the population of the nation from growing too large for the Egyptians to manage. Friends, just know this. It has always been a strategy of the devil to take the lives of children for the convenience of others. When God sent Moses to deliver the Hebrews from their Egyptian captivity, God did it in a very dramatic, frightening fashion. As Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go, God sent plagues of judgment against Egypt and the Egyptians. And the final plague was the most devastating plague of all. God sent an angel into the land who would bring death to the firstborn of every household. But God provided an escape, and that escape was available to all who would obey him. God commanded the people of Israel to kill a lamb and to paint some of the blood of that lamb on the door frames of their homes. If you think that sounds strange, realize they were moving out, so no one had to clean that up. And the, 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 the angel that would come would look and see the bloody door frames. And when he saw the mark of the blood on the door of the house, that angel that would bring death would pass over that home, sparing the firstborn children of the Israelites. But when the angel did not find that required mark, when the angel came across a home not covered by the blood of a sacrificed lamb, the angel brought death. That too has never changed. God commanded the people of Israel to commemorate that deliverance from Egyptian captivity with a special Passover meal every year. Each year, in formal celebration, the people would remember how God led the people out of their captivity. They would remember how God allowed a lamb to die instead of the firstborn children of the Hebrews. And part of that remembering was to have a meal in which they would use items like wine and unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and a lamb to draw their memories back to the deliverance of God. The Passover meal was one of the most sacred events in the Israelite calendar year, one of the big three celebrations. And even though a great deal was happening in the life of Jesus and his disciples, you, you would admit they were busy this week, right? There was no way the Savior would fail to participate in this sacred celebration. So as Thursday morning, Jesus will die tomorrow, as Thursday morning dawned, the disciples asked Jesus, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal? Now, preparation for Passover was not a small thing. The disciples had to locate a room large enough to accommodate a group of 13 for the meal. 
And they had to purchase the unleavened bread and the herbs and the wine and the lamb. And they had to take the lamb to the temple to have it sacrificed. And they had to prepare the meal itself. And it all had to happen in a city that was dramatically overcrowded by the pilgrims who were there to celebrate the Passover feast. So with all of that work to do, doesn't it strike you a little strange that the disciples on Thursday morning are asking Jesus, where do you think we ought to do this? How many of you are that kind of person, by the way? We'll find a place. Wives, how many of you love it when your husbands are like that? No, you better have this planned. This ought to stand out to you. This meal was why they came to Jerusalem. How in the world is it that on Thursday morning the disciples have no idea where they're going to eat it? Here's my answer to why the disciples did not know where Jesus would have them prepare the meal. Jesus hadn't told them. Though the Savior knew his plans, Jesus knew where he was going to go. He didn't share those plans with the group. Why not? Jesus had not shared this plan. I would suggest to you, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I think I'm right. In order to prevent Judas from being able to take any sort of action that would bring about Jesus' arrest by the Jews before the meal took place. Jesus intended to have this meal. Jesus knew when he was going to die. And Jesus was not going to let his death come until exactly the right moment. So here's the first side of the application point. We praise Jesus for walking willingly to the cross. Part of Jesus walking willingly to the cross is his prevention of his arrest and death until the proper time. Jesus was fully in control. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and Jesus was not going to let anybody disrupt the plan of God. So once Thursday morning rolls around, Jesus sends two of his disciples into Jerusalem to look for a particular man. Luke tells us that it was Peter and John who were sent and that they were going to go find a man in Jerusalem who was carrying a water jar. Understand that a man carrying a water jar was a strange sight to see at that time. And so that was a signal for them to know who to follow. And they could, tell, they could go with that man to the house and tell the master of the house that Jesus had, had decided that that house would be the house in which Jesus would eat the Passover meal. And so they went to Jerusalem and they saw the man and they said what they were supposed to say and they made the arrangements. And I would say to you, it's pretty clear that Jesus had worked out this plan with the owner of that house sometime well in advance. And he even worked out a signal. You know, I'm going to send a servant out with a water jar. You have your guys follow him. And that way Jesus could send Peter and John. They could make the preparations and they never even dropped the name of the homeowner in earshot of Judas. Judas had no idea where they were going to have the Passover meal, so Judas could not interrupt the Passover meal with his betrayal. Friends, Jesus was in control. He marched perfectly in control to the cross. Now, let's look at something significant that happens during the Passover meal, and it'll give us the other side of how we praise Jesus for willingly walking to the cross. It's in 20 to 25 when it was evening, 
he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say one after another to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So now we find ourselves witnessing the Passover meal itself. Jesus and his disciples are in a large upper room, reclining on cushions on the floor around a table. They would have been arranged, if you could picture it, on three sides of a table, leaving one end open so that a servant could come in and set things down on that low table. And Jesus and his disciples, probably at this point, they've had at least one of the cups of ceremonial wine. Um, they, would, they would serve during this meal four cups of diluted wine. And those four cups tied to the four promises of God made to Israel in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. You'll find four promises in those two verses, one cup of wine per promise. And they would have sung earlier that evening already probably Psalms 113 and 114. They're psalms of praise to God, part of the Hillel. Uh, um, the Hallel, not Hillel. Um, and perhaps, perhaps they've already eaten of the beginning of the meal, the, the bitter herbs that are part of the meal that reminded Israel of their bitter, sorrowful captivity in Egypt. And at some point during the meal, Jesus says something that really changed the mood. Everybody is, I mean, by this point in the meal, they're probably eating kind of freely. They're, they're probably just thinking and contemplative and what a great time this is to be with the Savior and remember these things. And Jesus announces to the group that one of them in that room around that table would betray him. And all of the disciples ask, Is it I? Am I? Am I the one you're talking about? Think about that for a second. On the one hand, none of them around that table other than Judas could imagine that anybody at that table already was acting on a plan to betray the Lord. They had no idea Judas was up to anything. But all of them are wondering, will I make a mistake that betrays my master? Will, will I fall into sin someday in the future so as to hurt my Lord? And the 11 faithful disciples, they are deeply troubled. Now, 
side point, not even in my notes. Uh, if those faithful 11 sincerely asked Jesus, could it be me? How self-confident should you be that you're safe without the protection of the Lord from doing something that would bring dishonor on his name? You, are you strong enough that you can confidently say, it'll never be me? Be careful. And plead with the Lord for grace. And as we learned in Sunday school this morning, lead us not into temptation. Well, the disciples ask, who in the world would do such a thing? And Jesus says, it's one of those who has shared with me in the meal. It's one who has dipped their hand with me in the bowl. To betray a friend is one thing, but to one of that culture, to betray a friend with whom you have recently shared hospitality, that's unthinkable. That is evil. And that announcement might have brought a couple Old Testament psalms to their mind. In Psalm 41, verse 9, the Bible says, Even my close friend in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 55, 12 to 14, David talking about somebody who betrayed him one day said, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Those might have rung in the ears of the disciples as Jesus says, one of you who has eaten with me will betray me. And Jesus is clear here as he talks to the disciples. He's clear about two things. He is clear with them that what is going to happen must, absolutely must, take place. How do we know? He says it has to happen as it has been written. This was already written about the Messiah. This was already prophesied. We know that from passages like Isaiah 53. Jesus must be betrayed. It has to happen. He has to go to his death as it has been predicted. But Jesus is also clear that the man who would betray him, that man is in serious trouble with God. It would be better for that man not to have been born than for him to live to betray the Son of God. Can you imagine Jesus looking around the table, seeing Judas and saying, okay, for this guy, a stillbirth would have been better than to live to do what you've done. Judas, the man who has already agreed he's going to betray Jesus, he's got he's to act. He's got to follow along. How conspicuous would it be if Judas was the only man in the room not asking Jesus, is it me? Because everybody else could start doing the math. So he asks a question of Jesus. Is it I, Rabbi? How interesting is it, by the way, that Judas calls Jesus Rabbi or teacher instead of calling him Lord like the others did. And Jesus answers Judas in a very clever way saying, 
You've said so. Jesus is making sure Judas knows that Jesus knows that Judas has betrayed him. Jesus is looking Judas right in the eye and saying, I've got you. I know it's you. You are not hiding anything from me. I know. But his words are not so clear as to make the other disciples aware that Judas is the betrayer because you got to think Peter would have got the sword out. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Yep. I mean, you th- at least you think you would, right? They would have jumped on Judas if Jesus said, Judas, it's you who are going to betray me. Oh, no, he's not leaving the room. Why did Jesus answer like this? What's he telling Judas? And what's he telling us? I believe that Jesus is, one, here giving Judas a final opportunity to repent. Judas could turn from his plan. Judas could bow to Jesus. Judas could seek forgiveness. You you might think that. But you know what? Jesus knows Judas will not. It will happen just as it was written. But also in this moment, Jesus is showing us how willingly he walks to the cross. In fact, this move by Jesus, Jesus at the table announcing, hey guys, just so you know, I know somebody is going to betray me. And his communication to Judas, that he knows, I know you're the one, Judas, that prompts Judas to move quickly. You see, think about it. Had Judas thought that Jesus was unaware of his plan to betray Jesus, Judas would not have gone to go get the priests and the soldiers on Thursday night. When did the priests not want to arrest Jesus? Thursday, Friday, that's the last thing they wanted. The priest particularly said, we will not do this during the feast. But Judas, see, Judas knows he's caught. And he knows that if Jesus wants to, he can walk away from him at any time that he wants. And Judas has to feel right now, I've got to move now, even if timing is not perfect for me, if I'm going to have Jesus arrested because otherwise the opportunity will be lost. He's going to send me away. He's going to tell people about me. I've got to do this right now. Which makes it even more fascinating in John's telling of this event that then Jesus looks at Judas and says, what you got to do, go do it quickly. And Judas walks out of the room. And Jesus is left in the room with the 11 faithful. And then we get to see what comes next. Well, here's what's amazing. The other 11, they thought Judas was such a close friend of Jesus. They believed Judas and Jesus were so tight that even when Jesus said go, they could not fathom that Judas was going to betray Jesus. So in verses 17 through 19, we saw what? That Jesus moved to prevent Judas Jesus moved to prevent Judas from betraying him before the Passover meal. Now, Jesus moves in such a way as to make it so that Judas, 
who is personally, willingly choose to betray Jesus, Judas must act immediately. Who do you think's in control, folks? Yeah. No, no, friends. Jesus is not forcing Judas to betray him. He's not making Judas sin. But you know what he is doing? He is utterly controlling the timetable of his betrayal so that he will accomplish his death at exactly, exactly the right time. Jesus is in control. And so, friends, praise Jesus. Worship Jesus for walking willingly to the cross. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew that he had to shape events so he could get to the cross and lay down his life in order to save a people for God. If you come to Jesus in faith, you've got to understand that the Lord Jesus that night shaped events so that he would walk at exactly the right time so that he might be punished for your sins so that your soul could be saved. And that is worth praising Jesus for. Second point. Remember Jesus until he returns. Remember Jesus until he returns. Verses 26 through 30. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus and the faithful 11 disciples, they are still around the table, around the Passover meal. The Savior does another thing here. He takes another action that will forever redefine the Passover meal for all who follow Jesus. He used elements that were present at the Passover meal and he speaks a new significance over them and he commands his disciples, he commands you and me to use those elements to remember him. First, he takes bread, blesses it, and breaks it. Now, blessing bread and breaking it is not unusual. It's a very ordinary action, but it might have stood out here because this is mid-meal, that's not when the blessing, it would have already been spoken at the beginning, but now Jesus is doing it again. Unleavened bread, bread with no yeast in it, was used during the Passover meal uh, for, for the eating of the haroset, which is like this sweet paste of, of fruit and nuts. It was used to help with the lamb. It, it, you, know, you, you, you ate it as part of the meal. But the unleavened bread in the Passover reminded the Israelites of how quickly they had to run away from Egypt. And the lack of leaven, the lack of leaven from Egypt in that bread said that the Israelites, they were leaving Egypt with no trace of Egypt left in their system. We're leaving Egypt behind. God has taken us out. And he's taken us out right now. We don't have time to let our bread leaven but what really makes this stand out is that Jesus now vests the bread with a brand new significance because he declares, this is my body. Now, 
so that we are all clear, Martin Luther notwithstanding, Jesus is using a metaphor. Do you know that when Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches, he was not telling his disciples that he actually was a grapevine? You didn't think that, right? If you read that, you don't think Jesus transformed into a grapevine. When you hear Jesus say to his disciples, I am the door, you did not think that he had somehow transformed or put himself physically in part of a door. Here, Jesus did not intend that Christians through the centuries believe that the bread of the Lord's Supper would somehow become his body in any literal sense. At that meal, when Jesus said, this is my body, Jesus was sitting at the table in his body holding the bread, and there's no evidence to believe that any one of the disciples believed that Jesus had somehow also made the loaf of bread or the, the, the unleavened bread he was holding into his body too. Jesus used the bread, a very ordinary part of a Jewish meal, and a very ordinary part of this celebration. He used it to symbolize his body. Do not let anyone tell you that anything transforms transubstantiates, consubstantiates, changes in the bread during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Then after they had eaten, Jesus did something very similar with a ceremonial cup of wine, one of those four cups. Either the third cup, maybe the fourth cup, probably the third was the one Jesus took and blessed here. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I love the use of the word many there. There's a theological significance there as to who Jesus was dying for. Many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus gives a new religious significance to that element. It was not part of the understanding of the Passover meal and again, no, Jesus did not want the church to believe that the cup would somehow contain his literal blood. Jesus was speaking metaphorically. None of the disciples thought Jesus put literal blood in that wine cup. For Jesus to say this was his blood of the covenant, though, it, takes us, it gives us a few images, right? Clearly, when he talks about blood at this meal, you've got to think about the Passover lamb, right? Obviously that works. But that's not the only image Jesus is giving us because he says this is his blood of the covenant. No covenant was made at the Passover meal. This harkens back to Exodus chapter 24. There, Moses had sacrificed animals. He had anointed things like the tabernacle. He sprinkled blood, or he anointed the, the books, and he sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the people of Israel. It's one of the few times in the nation of Israel where the blood was actually sprinkled on anybody. He sprinkled blood over the people over as they entered into covenant with God at Mount, at Mount Sinai. The blood was part of making a covenant. And just as God was making a covenant with the nation centuries earlier in Exodus chapter 24, Jesus is saying at this meal, guys, I'm making a brand new covenant with my followers, one that fulfills the old, but one that is new. It is sealed with Jesus's very blood. And the faithful follower of God would have known God has always promised that there would be a new covenant to come. 
in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, if nothing else. Listen to the words of Scripture. Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Is it exactly the same? Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer, no longer shall each of them teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. How beautiful is that? No need to witness in this covenant as far as to those who are in it. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. Declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. Whose iniquity? Everybody in this covenant. And I will remember their sin no more. Does that not sound like a covenant you want in? So we've got Jesus saying, this is my blood of the covenant. That's a picture that he brings out that's not necessarily a Passover picture. Yes, we got the Passover lamb picture, but this is something extra. And then Jesus said his blood would be poured out for many. For what reason? For the forgiveness of sins. Friends, that's significant. The Savior knew that his mission was to be a sin offering. Now, again, think about the Passover meal because all we, we often only equate Lord's Supper with Passover because it happened on Passover. But... The Passover lamb wasn't a sin offering. So when Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, Exodus 24, that I'm pouring out for many for the forgiveness of sins, where do you get blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins? There's plenty of it in Leviticus, right? Very bloody book. But where do you get human blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament? Where do you get a man giving his life to make atonement for the sins of others? Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, I'll read for you, and then 10 through 12. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But then verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Then it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, a guilt offering, a sin offering, a man making a sin offering. What's going to happen after that? This is great. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He's going to live again. 
The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my servant, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. How, how similar does that sound? He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you see that this image fits what we're talking about here too? Yeah, we've got the Passover image, one person dying so others can live. Yes, we've got the covenant-making image, this is the blood of the covenant. And yes, we have a sin-offering image, the Isaiah 53 image, he bears the sin of others. This is all wrapped up in this meal. And then Jesus says, I'm not going to drink this special cup again until I do it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is Jesus pointing toward a day that is still yet to come when he returns in glory and when he finishes establishing his eternal kingdom. So he's not only giving us all that imagery, but he's giving us a point to the future. So once every bit of this is finished, this is great. The disciples, they sing a hymn, probably Psalms 115 through 118, one of those psalms. And they left the upper room to travel to the Mount of Olives. Now, stop. How heavy was this night? If you were in that room, how heavy would this have been? Y'all, I, I spent a moment this last week watching a really awkward exchange of conversation taking place between some people that I felt really weird. And it stuck with me for a little while. That was weird. If you think whatever I saw was weird, uh, Jesus just said, someone's going to kill me, and I'm changing everything that you know about the Passover, because I'm the Passover. Don't you think that would make you feel a little bit weird? So what do they do? Let's have our closing song. And they sang. Jesus, God in flesh, took time to sing a hymn of worship before he went out to the Mount of Olives. How wonderful is it to know that the Savior took time to sing hymns of worship on the very night that he would begin his deep suffering for the sins of every sin God would ever forgive. Jesus sang the praise of God. Friends, singing the praise of God is a right, glorious thing. It is an act fitting for every Christian of every age, of every generation. And don't you dare let yourself not learn to love the singing of the praise of our God. If Jesus can do it on the night he was betrayed, don't tell me, I'm not a good singer, so I don't like it. <laughs> you get it? Learn to love. Well, they're not singing the kind of songs I like. Shut up. I don't have a better, nicer way to say it. Well, I'm not a singer. Okay. Jesus was, and you want to be like Jesus, right? Sing. Okay, that was a tangent. And we're left here to consider the significance of what Jesus has done. Jesus commanded us, the followers of Jesus, 
to participate in a ceremony like the one that he instituted with his disciples. He's given this command to you and to me. He has told us to keep doing this until the day he returns. So get this. What do we do? What do we do? As a regular act of Christian worship, we will use physical elements to remind us of the Lord Jesus. Or as I heard a man say this week, you know what we get to do? We, we sing scripture. We preach scripture. We see scripture on display as we participate in this ceremony. It reminds us of the Lord Jesus. We will hold a piece of bread in our hands and we will remember Jesus' body, which he gave for us. We will remember the miracle it is that God the Son and eternal spirit became a man, a human man, to represent you and me before God the Father. When you hold that bread in your hand, you remember, I could have touched Jesus if I was alive back then. That's stunning. And Jesus lived. When you hold that bread and you think about the life of Jesus, the body of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus, in that human body, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He perfectly obeyed every single thing God ever required of any man toward perfection. And it's that obedience, it's that record of perfection that you have to have credited to your account if you ever want to be able to enter the presence of God. And Jesus suffered in that human body. And he, he, he went through hardships and pain and God was broken in that human body on our behalf. And when you hold the cup, you remember the blood of the Lord Jesus. You remember that Jesus used his blood to inaugurate the new covenant. And in that covenant, every single person who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance finds forgiveness of their sins and adoption into the family of God. And the blood of Jesus is the perfect blood of a sacrifice. Jesus' blood was shed to pay the penalty for our sins so that God could forgive us and still be utterly, perfectly just. And the cup reminds us of the promise of Jesus Christ's return. Jesus said, I'm going to drink this with you new in my Father's kingdom. And friends, we long for the day that we share that kind of fellowship with our Savior. Can you imagine holding a cup in your hand, looking at the Lord Jesus and saying, this reminds me of you. That's good, right? And we remember Jesus has promised to return. So you eat the bread and you drink the cup. That will help you spiritually remember that Jesus is your true nourishment. Because you eat it. You drink it. What do you eat and drink food for? Life, right? How many of you live without food? Nope. Not for long. We need our Lord to sustain us in every part of our being, do we not? Now, no, we do not literally eat or drink Jesus. But we do declare to God when we eat and drink this supper that we only live because of Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, Look at the timeline. Christians in the present look back into the past 
And remember that Lord Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and then shed his blood for our salvation. And we look forward to the future on the day when Jesus returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. We are past, present, and future with the Lord Jesus in one moment. Now listen, if you don't know Jesus, let me point out to you why this matters. Jesus died to save God's people from their sins. And no person can ever be forgiven by God without turning away from their sin and believing in Jesus for life. And if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus in faith, I urge you, I plead with you for the sake of your soul, for the sake of your forever, I plead with you, Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus to be saved. And when you see Christians in this room holding the bread and holding the cup, and as you see Christians remembering the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, why not in your heart cry out to Jesus and plead with him, please Jesus, forgive me, change me, take my life, make me yours because of your finished work on the cross. Listen guys, Christians don't get extra grace. We don't get extra forgiveness. We don't get extra righteousness because of the juice or the bread. You know what we do? We worship and we remember the Savior who grants us righteousness and grace. And that Savior commands every person everywhere. He sent out the command, turn from your sin, repent and believe to be saved. And Christians, <sighs> This is good stuff, don't you think? We've seen wonderful things today. Jesus willingly walked to the cross. Jesus, he worked out the timing so that he could die when he wanted to. Because he did that because he was going to save your soul and mine. And he gave his followers a worshipful ceremony to practice so that we might remember his death until he comes. So let us praise Jesus for his sovereignty over even when he would lay down his life and let us worship the Lord Jesus by participating in Lord's Supper. All right, I'm going to have only Erica come up here. Andrew, you guys stay down there. I don't want to confuse anybody. We're going to transition directly into our celebration of Lord's Supper. Let's pray first. I'll talk to you a little bit more as we wrap up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son. And may we, through action, through ceremony, through memory, through faith, through repentance, may we glorify the Lord Jesus, help us this day be true children of God. We eat the bread, we drink the cup, we remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Right now, God, if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who does not know the Lord Jesus, I plead with you, Lord, I plead with you, save their souls. 
and for all who know the Lord Jesus, I pray that we will be sustained by the Lord Jesus. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.